Well, I do want to read this, this paragraph again. This will be the last week that we get to spend in these verses. And so I want to read beginning in verse 24 just to remind us of the whole context of what Jesus has been saying to His disciples. So beginning in verse 24, we read, Then Jesus told His disciples, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And we'll be focusing on this last verse, verse 28. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would pour out Your Spirit upon us now and help us to understand Your Word. We gladly, humbly admit that without Your Spirit we can't understand, and so please illuminate these these words for us. Lord, I pray that You would be with Your servant, that he might speak with clarity of thought, Lord, please be with Your people that we might all think clearly about this. Lord, that we would readily engage our minds with this verse. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus and for His glory. Amen. You may have a seat. As is often the case when you have a devotion to uh, the systematic exposition of Scripture, specifically straight through books of the Bible, we, we have arrived again at what I believe to be a very difficult passage of Scripture. As I've uh, studied and, and prayed and then of course ran to my, my regular list of uh, commentators to get help um, from, from the centuries of church history... In studying this passage, I've found that commentators are not unanimous on anything about this verse except for the fact that it is a difficult verse. It's difficult to understand, difficult to apply, difficult to uh, interpret. Now, because we have a lot of work ahead of us in unpacking this, I, I want to be, I hope you'll be satisfied with a very short introduction. Remember where we've been. Jesus has described discipleship in ways that most would consider to be very dreary, very gloomy. We've used words like victory only comes through suffering. Conquest only comes through apparent defeat. Glorification only comes through death. Life will only come through death. That's the picture Jesus has painted. And then last week, Jesus encouraged His disciples by pointing them to the final judgment, the second coming, 
and the rendering of perfect justice. If you deny yourself and if you take up your cross and if you follow Jesus and if you lose your life for the sake of Christ, if you preserve the eternal blessing of your soul with God, well, then you will be rendered according to that fruit, according to those works at the second coming. That was last week. Then we come to verse 28, and I'm going to read it again, and I want you to wrap your mind around what's being said. And if you read it, and, and, or you hear it, and you think, well, that's easy. It means this. Well, that proves you're probably not reading it correctly, and you're not thinking through all of the terms. Listen to what he says. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now, some questions that we might ask first. Is this verse connected to the previous passage, verse 27? Or is this verse looking forward to the next section, namely the transfiguration? See, answering those questions or or raising those questions helps us to see some of the difficulty. Now, we're going to have to work through this verse piece by piece to come to a conclusion, but suffice it for now to say this. These disciples were not expected to simply deny themselves, fold their hands, and wait for either death or the coming judgment in order to experience the necessary encouragement for self-denial and sacrificial discipleship. And neither are we. Jesus has said, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. And here's the encouragement. The Son of Man is going to come in the, in the, with His angels in the glory of His Father and then He will render it to each man according to His works. There will be a coming judgment. And they might be thinking, okay, well let's just prepare for the judgment then. Prepare for the second coming, or maybe we'll just prepare for our death. And Jesus is saying here, no, you don't have to wait. We can look, and I believe this is the point of the verse, we can look at Christ's current position and the manifestation of that position to receive real, present encouragement. As we read through Daniel chapter 7, that's encouraging. As we sing, all hail the power of Jesus' name. That's encouraging. We might look at the world around us outside and watch the news and think, man, I am really discouraged. We can't forget. He's king. Remember where he is now. And you'll be encouraged. And so I've I've given this sermon the title, Christ's Present Position as Encouragement to Discipleship. Christ's current position as encouragement to discipleship. And I want to look at this encouragement, or this word of encouragement under four headings. It's emphasis, it's intended recipients, it's relevant time frame, and it's experiential nature. So first, it's emphasis. Jesus says at the beginning of verse 28, Truly I say to you. Now I do believe that the ultimate intent and purpose 
of this statement, regardless of its immediate interpretation, the ultimate intent and then the, the, the doctrines and the implications that come out of it that we might glean from it are found or only can, can only be understood in light of this very first statement of introduction. He begins with the word truly, which translated is where we get our word amen. This word truly is an emphatic particle. In the older translations, you might read a verily. It is a particle used to express stress or intensity. He could also have said, surely. He says, truly, I say to you, and whatever follows the truly, I say to you, is a solemn declaration that the hearers should perk up and pay special attention to. Now to understand this and to prove it, I want to look at uh, a multitude of other passages of Scripture. For me, I struggled with this text and to understand what it meant until I went through the, the work that we're about to go through. And then when I did this, it began to make sense. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, we read this. And just notice the, 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 the line of thought in these passages. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So notice there, he states a truth, and then he follows that truth by saying, in effect, let me explain to you the terminal extent of this truth. Just how far and how deep does it go? I didn't come to abolish the law. As a matter of fact, heaven and earth will pass away before all of this is accomplished. Matthew 5, 25 and 26. He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So he states this command and then he says, truly I say to you. And then in essence he's saying, let me help you see the severity of this situation and the necessity of obedience. You're going to go to prison. That's bad. But let me explain. You won't get out until you've paid the debt. We come to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 2. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And again, a very similar statement in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 6. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Now in both of those, notice... He makes a reference to the hypocritical actions of others. And then he uses this truly phrase to say, let me clarify the reality of their situation. It's bad. Verse, or Matthew chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. The centurion says to Jesus, For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes... And to my servant, do this, and he does it. 
When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. So the centurion vocalizes his faith. And then when Jesus hears it, he says, he uses this truly phrase. And he's doing it in such a way to reference the foregoing incident and the magnitude of the situation. This man's great faith. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Again, he describes this possible scenario, and then he uses this truly phrase to state the unavoidable reality of those who fit the hypothesis. If they will not receive you, it's going to be bad. As a matter of fact, it's going to be this bad. He emphasizes their judgment. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen none greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, prior to this, Jesus had made reference to John the Baptist, and then he gives this truly phrase and, and states the emphatic truth about John the Baptist contrary to what most of the people would have believed or would have thought about John. Jesus said, in essence, yeah, John was great. John fulfilled prophecy. As a matter of fact, let me intensify this. There's none greater than John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 16 and 17, he tells his disciples, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So Jesus pronounces this word of blessing and then He follows this by emphasizing the significance of the situation in relevant terms. The disciples would have held high the prophets and the, the men, godly men of old, and He says, you're blessed. As a matter of fact, you're more blessed than those who you look up to because you see and you, you hear these things. So notice... In every single use of this phrase, this, this truly phrase, there is a statement of truth, or in the case of the centurion, a, a real event, and then following the truly phrase is an intensified statement used to emphasize the truth that was just stated, or the event that just took place. The second statement always undergirds and supports and intensifies and emphasizes the first statement. So whatever follows the truly or the amen or the verily or the surely serves to press home the first statement, the original statement. So we come back here to Matthew chapter 28. Jesus has just given a word of encouragement. And He says, in other words, here's a second reinforcing truth that should serve to aggravate the first truth for the better or for the worse, here for the better. Again, why say it here? Last week he gave a word of encouragement. Yes, it, it looks dreary. Yes, it looks abysmal. But look forward to the final judgment. The Son of Man will return. There will be a settling of all debts. Justice will be served. You will receive your reward. And then here he presses that encouragement on. 
He drives it deeper into their hearts. He intensifies the motivation to discipleship. In other words, if you're discouraged, verse 27, look to the final judgment. And if that's not enough, verse 28, there's even better news. There's even greater encouragement than the fact that Jesus is going to settle all debts and render to each man according to his deeds. So we conclude then that verse 28 must be connected to verse 27. And verse 28 must intensify or emphasize or make more real the encouragement given in verse 27. So that's its emphasis. It's important. What he's saying is intense. Number two, its intended recipients. At this point, we move into the main body of this statement of encouragement. Now, much of the difficulty that arises in our, in our attempting to interpret this is caused by our commitment to proper hermeneutics. And yes, you heard that correctly. Because we are devoted to allowing the Scriptures speak for themselves, we have to deal with the exact words Jesus said. And he says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here. Now, to whom is Jesus speaking? In verse 13 we read, Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples. Verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples. Verse 24, then Jesus told his disciples. So we know His disciples are around, but if we know our, our gospel stories, we might ask, well, is He talking about the 12 disciples? Or is He talking about just this crowd that followed Jesus all the time that were often referred to as disciples, as pupils or learners? Well, when we turn to Mark chapter 8, verse 34, it says, and calling the crowd to Him with His disciples. So Jesus is speaking to a mixed crowd of followers, of disciples. Some of them would have been genuine. Some of them were not genuine. They were following simply for the, the excitement of His miracles. He's speaking, and here's my point, He's speaking to people at that time and in that place. Now, what does He mean there are some standing here in the first century, somewhere around 33 to 36 A.D.? Of that crowd... That day, there were some to which His present teaching would be of specific encouragement. It would be explicitly beneficial to some of those people right there. And we can't sidestep that. Now, you may not know this. When you read, a lot of people try to interpret this and they'll say, well, He meant people of this present age. As... as so, so this could be referring to anybody from the time of Jesus until now. Or some would say, well, he's talking about there, there were angels gathered around the conversation that were standing there that no one could see, that will not die, they live eternally. Well, both of those explanations do harm to the very words of the, the verse. He says there are some standing here and he's talking to these people. And here's the thing, the fact that he is referring to those specific people is particular reason for encouragement. If we try to do hermeneutical gymnastics around this phrase, it robs those people who heard it 
and us of the encouragement he's trying to convey. He was speaking of and to people who were standing there that day hearing his words. So those are the intended recipients of this, this encouragement. Those standing there. Number three, it's relevant time frame. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until... Now what does that phrase mean? They will not taste death until... Well, oftentimes you may have heard death being referred to as the bitter cup of death. And to, to taste something was to experience it in the most intimate form. So to taste the bitter cup of death was to experience in a most intimate way, death. That is, to die. So when he says, those will, who will not taste death, he's saying there's people here who will not die until. And then he gives an event. They will not die until this happens. Again, who's he speaking to? He's speaking to people in the first century, somewhere between 33 to 36 AD, something like that. Various ages, some of them may have been very young. Little children, some of them may have been very old. We don't know. But Jesus is saying that the experience that He's about to describe will be something made available within the lifetimes of at least some of those who were there that day. And again, we can't sidestep this and say, well, he's talking about angels, and they, didn't, they, they never die. So, so whatever he describes could be something at any time, in any place. Whatever the events are that he's describing, they would have or could have been experienced within the lifetimes of those standing there that day, in the first century. This is a relevant time frame. These people would have understood it, perhaps, Matthew's first readers, his first audience, would have understood it. What the Bible didn't mean then, it can't mean now. It's always been relevant. And so it was of relevant encouragement to the original hearers of these words. And that again is why it is encouraging to us. That, yeah, yeah, there is encouragement in knowing. Someday all debts will be settled. We will be repaid according to our works. And yes, every wicked work will be judged and, and rewarded or punished accordingly. Yes, there is encouragement as we look forward to that day. But there's also great reward in knowing that you do not have to wait until the final judgment. You do not have to wait until your death to see or experience the benefits of following Christ, of taking up the cross, of denying yourself. He was telling the crowd that day that they would be, some of them would be immensely rewarded and motivated within their own lifetime. Again, listening to a Messiah who just said, I'm going to die and you're going to die. You have to deny yourself. So Jesus is beginning to hint at this. And this is something that we might need to understand, especially as we've spent weeks studying self-denial, self-abasement, taking up the cross that Christian, the, the Christian life is not just a message of accept the misery. Don't ever expect to be happy in this life. And some people make it out to be that way. Well, this world's not my home. 
They never expect any joy, any, any happiness, any benefit from being a disciple. They would say, well, don't look forward to any earthly joy at all. And if you are taking joy in anything in this world, well, you're sinning. You need to cut it out and be, be abysmal like me. Be depressed like me. Put on your, your frown your, and take up your cross and follow Jesus. Deny yourself. And Jesus is saying, there is reward to come and there is reward now. There's benefit now. It's coming soon. Number four, it's experiential nature. This motivation to discipleship is something that at least some of those standing there that day would have been able to experience tangibly. He says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death, that is, they will not die until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. They will not die until they see. That is, until they perceive with their eyesight. They, they see with their own eyes. Now what will some of them see? The Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now again, this is a difficult expression. Commentators are all over the place. This is the coming of the kingdom. This is, this is the second, the final judgment. This is, this is this and this is that. Well, let's go back to our foundational truths that we have to always remind ourselves of in Matthew's Gospel. The kingdom was not a literal castle wherein all of the people of God went to live after they were saved. The kingdom is the redemptive rule and reign of God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of His people. It is a spiritual kingdom. So we might ask, how can anyone see that? How can you see the rule and reign of God in Christ over the hearts of His people? Well, let's listen to the other gospel writers as they describe this. Luke says, until they see the kingdom of God. And then Mark extends it and he says, they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And then Matthew adds, until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now if we read them in that order, notice this progression. They'll see the kingdom, and they'll see the kingdom with power. And then Matthew says it's going to be the Son of Man who has the power coming with His kingdom. So there's, this, there's sort of a, a progression there. If we put all of the synoptic expressions together, it seems that Jesus is saying that there are some standing there who would be able to see some sort of outward, visible expression of the invisible power and rule and authority of Jesus. You don't see authority. You see people submitting to authority. You don't see power. You see people who bend under the weight of power. So here's the encouragement that Jesus is giving to intensify verse 27. He says, there are some standing here who will not need to wait until the second judgment, who will not need to wait until death to see the benefits of self-denying, cross-carrying, world-rejecting, soul-saving 
discipleship. Some of you will be able to experience, he says, within your lifetimes, the outward visible fruit of the redemptive rule and reign of God in and through the Messiah. You'll see it. You'll experience Now think about how encouraging that would have been to people under the oppression of Rome, thinking that the Messiah was come to release them from that oppression. That Messiah then just says, but I'm going to die and you've got to deny yourself and suffer with me. And he says, well, there's the second coming. There'll be justice served. But even before that, in your own lifetime, you will be able to watch and see Things And when you see them and you think of them rightly, you can look and say, Jesus reigns. He rules now and I don't have to question it. That's what he's saying. So now we come to the difficulty of this passage. What is he talking about? What's he referring to? Now there are multiple options. Some say he's referring to the second coming. Reference in verse 27. Some would say he's referencing the destruction of Jerusalem. In 70 A.D., some say he's talking about multiple events. The, the resurrection spanning through the ascension, spanning through Pentecost, and the preaching of the gospel, and the church being established. And others would say he's speaking of the transfiguration, which is the following story. Well, when you try to apply this to the second coming... There are some pros. I mean, you, with the second coming, there will be the obvious outworking of authority and power. And it does fit well with the previous verse, but it either immediately verifies full preterism, Jesus has already returned, or we would have to assume that there were some standing there who are not dead yet. They're in the world somewhere right now waiting to see this. So it has its pros and cons. There are some who would say it's the destruction of Jerusalem. Remember what happened when Jerusalem was destroyed. The most anti-Christ ethnic group that has ever lived on the planet, the Jews, were wiped out. And once and for all, their whole religious system, everything, and that took place almost exactly 40 years, a generation from this time period. Uh, it's difficult to uh, explain the seeing of the Son of Man. Although there are uh, traditions where some say that they saw visibly Jesus in the clouds when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D. Now that's... You know, take it with a grain of salt, I guess. If you believe it is multiple events, the resurrection going through Pentecost, again, you do see the authority of God displayed. You see death defeated. You see the gospel going forth. You see the kingdom advancing in power and Gentiles being saved. But again, there's no real definite seeing of the Son of Man specifically there. And then we come to the transfiguration idea. And I'm going to be honest, I like that, uh, that, that interpretation. And I'll tell you why I like it, even though I don't believe it's, it's um, authoritative, my opinion anyway. Remember, Mark said, some will not die until they see the kingdom of God. Or that was Luke. Mark said, they will not die until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And Matthew says, until they see the Son of Man coming. Now, when we read the transfiguration, we might think, well, how does the Son of Man coming in power in His kingdom fit the transfiguration? Well, listen to Peter, one who was present, 
describe the scene. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, he says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Now what do you think of when you think of majesty? Or maybe even the title, Your Majesty. You think of a king with a kingdom. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And, and in that passage, he talks about the things that they saw on the holy mountain. The way Peter described the transfiguration was the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in majesty. That's why I think it's a good interpretation. Now, one of the cons of that interpretation is people would say, well, he says there are some standing here who will not taste death. Now that seems a, a little extreme of a statement for an event that was going to happen around a week later. Like you're going to make it one more week. But again, I believe he's focusing on the fact that the encouragement would be sooner rather than later. In other words, the focus is not on the length of a lifetime, but on the fact that they do not have to wait until the end of their lifetime or the second judgment to see the visible outworking of the redemptive rule and reign of God in Christ on the earth. Yes, the Messiah must suffer. Yes, the disciples must suffer. You must deny yourself, but even in and through all of that, you will be able to see in your lifetime and experience in your lifetime and watch as God in your lifetime works through the ruling and reigning Messiah King as the King tramples His enemies under His feet and brings all things in subjection to Him. In other words, you'll be able to see that you're on the winning team. No matter what's going on around the world, you're on the winning team. Ultimately, all of those options, whether you believe it is the second coming, whether you believe it is the destruction of Jerusalem, whether you believe it is the events spanning from the resurrection to the preaching of the gospel, or whether you believe it is the transfiguration, they all either stand in history or will come someday to display the ultimate sovereign redemptive power of our King. And the second coming, He will execute judgment finally on all of creation. In the destruction of Jerusalem, those who hated Christ, those who put Him to death, were wiped out completely. That, the entire old covenant system and the people connected to it were made to be to the outside world little more than a historic footnote until the 1940s. If you believe it's the resurrection and the ascension and the preaching of the gospel at Pentecost and the establishment of the church, you can see there Jesus conquered death. He ascended into the heavens. He was presented before the Ancient of Days. He was given all authority. The gospel can't be stopped. The church cannot be defeated. All of these things are encouraging to us. When we come to the transfiguration, we'll have to wait and see that one next week, how it encourages us. But by way of application, there were those in Jesus' day who although they were required to deny themselves and take up their cross, 
They would be able to experience the obvious outworking of the power of Christ. And if that's the case, then surely here, almost 2,000 years later, we can read of and we can see and we can experience the same encouragements or at least encouragements of the same kind in our own process of discipleship. We know Christ's kingdom has been established. We're not waiting for anything. Jesus and John the Baptist both preached, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus Himself said, If I cast out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of heaven has come upon you. Did He cast out demons by the power of God? Yes. Then the kingdom of heaven has already come upon us. We're not waiting for anything else. We're not looking forward to anything except for the consummation of that kingdom. We've seen... Christ display His power in the historical events already named. Just think about it. The Bible describes death as the last enemy. Jesus has already defeated death. The last enemy we have has already been conquered. We're simply waiting for that enemy to be cast into the lake of fire. We know, based on Scripture, that Satan has been bound from deceiving the nations and so the gospel can go forth. As Jesus looked forward to the cross, He said, Behold, now is the ruler of this world cast out. Paul writes that Jesus triumphed over the powers of darkness in the cross. The author to the Hebrews says, God has put all things in subjection to Him, although we do not yet see all things in subjection to Him. When we look outside, we might think, it doesn't really look like He's in control, but we know that He is. We are living in the time of the reign of King Jesus. And so, He's not lost control when part of the Turkish government wants to overthrow the other part. He's not lost control. He doesn't jump to His feet and and begin twisting knobs and pulling buttons and trying to fix things. When a terrorist drives a truck into a crowd of people in France, he's not surprised. He's not lost control. When believers around the world are punished, when the church struggles, I read a link that said, I believe it was in Iowa, they're beginning to censure churches now. They're not allowed to to preach anything that would... would, um, speak against or call sin the, the lifestyles of the LGBT quote community in Iowa. Churches are not allowed to restrict their restrooms. Jesus is not experiencing a setback. He's not saying, well, let's just, let's just fall back and punt. Let's try, let's try an, a, a different route. We're not waiting to him, for Him to have any more authority than He already has. He's not tying up loose ends. He's in control. We can look at gospel proclamation and specifically success and see the rule and the reign of King Jesus. Here's an example. And I've told some of you this story. Last week I preached and I went home and I asked Christy, what would you think? As I always do. And she said, I don't know, I was wrestling the kids. Actually, I think her exact words were, I don't understand what any of it meant. And then I pressed a little harder. And she said, well, she was wrestling with the kids and things and she struggled. 
And I said, well, the reason I'm asking is because I felt like I stood alone speaking to a wall. And when you preach, you know there are times when people are engaged and people are not. And maybe it's just me, but you just feel like I stood alone. It was what we might call a, quote, dud of a sermon. What are you going to do? That's bad. Well, we can fix it. There's always three hours from now when I had already planned to preach the same sermon at the prison. I said, I'm going to go home. I'll rework it to fit their context. I'll preach the same sermon, which I have deemed a dud so far. And so I spent last Sunday afternoon reworking some things and fitting it into their context and their time frame, and, and, but mostly just praying, God, if it's a dud, it's a dud. I'm sorry, I, but I wish you would really do something. Even, even if it's just the fact that I'm going to read your word out loud, just do something. And I preached, and when you've been there, the guys come at the end, thank you, Pastor, for preaching, that was good. And a young man came up to me and he said, I need to be saved. I, what? He said, I need to be saved. Okay, and I told Kyle it was like third string quarterback being put into the Super Bowl. I was just getting excited and God is just, just sit down right here. And I preached the gospel to him again as I'd already done. Same gospel. Preached it to him again as we sat there. Gave him a, a double barrel blast. And I said, so, so what do you think? He's like, well, that's, I need that. I need to be saved. I'm a sinner. He explained his background. And apparently, I mean, I prayed with him. By all outward appearances, the man appears to have been saved. And I left and I said, you cannot tell me, as driving home, you cannot tell me Jesus does not do whatever He wants, whenever He wants, with whomever He wants. He saves people. And so when we see the gospel going forth, whether it looks like apparent success or apparent failure, every time Christ gets the glory and His kingdom advances just a little further. We can also see this in our own personal growth and sanctification. This is 2016, July of 2016. I want you to think about where you were five years ago spiritually. This church did not exist. Where were you? Some of you were lost as the day you were born five years ago. Think about where you were six months ago spiritually. Have you seen growth? Have you seen advancing? That is the power of Jesus. That's the redemptive rule and reign of God in Christ working in your life. Consider your children. Some of our children are beginning to, to, to talk and to learn. Did you ever think your kids would be learning the catechism? That they would be, before they can even speak, mimicking your postures of prayer and mumbling and saying amen when they get done. And I know for some of us, we cannot even imagine the day when our children will sit beside us with an open Bible and they will take notes in an expositional sermon like this. And they'll ask questions and they'll learn from it. And it can happen. How do I know that it can happen? Because Christ rules and He reigns. And because we are able to see now in our own lifetimes the visible manifestations of that redemptive rule and that reign. We can see it. So sure, you'll suffer. There'll be times when it's difficult. You're going to suffer. But would you rather go back to where you were five years ago? I would say most of us would say no. Sure, you'll have to deny yourself some comfort and some time and some energy and some nerves as you prepare for corporate worship. 
And you just, you just try to pay attention. But would you rather your children be in a, in a separate building somewhere playing with Play-Doh versus hearing the gospel? I, would, I don't think any of us would say, well, of course. There will be awkward moments in family worship. But how many of us would rather just go back to being like any old pagan family in, in their household where the TV plays all the time and there is no Scripture read. There are no prayers prayed. There are no hymns sung. I don't think any of us would say, I want to go back to that because this is just too hard. There's no doubt that tempers may flare when you bring up difficult things in conversation with your spouse, but how many of us would rather just go back to wondering, is my spouse really saved? We wouldn't go back to that. We'd have those conversations a thousand times if we could verify, just to satisfy our own hearts, that they are a believer. We go through all these struggles and all these times of self-denial, all these times of taking up the cross and suffering, and usually, we only remember the suffering. We only remember the difficulty. And it's not until we look back and think, I do, I do see now that God, in Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, was bringing my entire world in subjection to Him. He was doing it, but we, we miss it until we look back. So we don't have to wait until death. and We don't have to wait until the final judgment to see the benefits of self-denial, of taking up the cross, of following Jesus, of letting go of the world, of denying ourselves worldly pleasures for the sake of the gospel. We don't have to wait because we can see it right now. We can see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom with power and authority right now. If those in Jesus' day could see it, then surely we can see those things now. Now, one of the great benefits of the triumph of Jesus is that in an assembly of all Gentiles, almost 2,000 years after His life, 6,000 miles away from Jerusalem, across an ocean, we can gather filled with that same Holy Spirit and come to the Lord's table and commune with Him. We can receive the grace and the benefits of His work because we have received the indwelling of that same Holy Spirit that was sent. And remember, He said, if I do not go, then I can't send the Holy Spirit. But because I go, I'm leaving you the Holy Spirit, which is going to be even better than if I were to stay. And so He ascends to the heaven, into the heavens, to the right hand of the Father. He receives the dominion and the kingdom. He sends His Holy Spirit. And here we are, gathered in an assembly of Spirit-filled believers. It was at the cross where in one fell swoop Christ's body was broken and at the same time the skull of that ancient serpent was crushed. It was through apparent defeat that He won the victory and it was through His death that we receive life. And it is this crucified and yet victorious King with which we fellowship at His table. So as the elements are passed, let us examine ourselves And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup in a worthy manner.